All right. Hello, everybody. I'm Glenn McDormand, and this is ATAS, your everything Lovecraft wrote is true, speculative fiction book club podcast by Clay Temple Media. This episode, we are covering the 2012 novel by Ned Bowman called The Teleportation Accident. This episode was commissioned by one of our really awesome Patreon supporters. As always, we're so grateful for that support. Episode commissions are a huge part of how the network stays on the air. We're really grateful for that. But I'm also really grateful for the chance to read this book that I otherwise had simply never heard of. This book is not itself a work of speculative fiction. Uh, That might not quite be true. It may be a book of speculative fiction a little bit, a tiny bit, but that's not really going to matter. And my point is just that it's set in our real world. There's no speculative element to it. Uh, Everything is the same. But while this book is definitely going to show up in the literary fiction section of a bookstore or a library, it is very much a book about speculative fiction. We're going to be talking a lot about H.P. Lovecraft in the themes and motifs segment, uh, at the very least. It's also just a brilliantly composed book, and so I'm really glad to have read this. But I think that's enough preamble, so let's just take a deep breath and get ready for The Teleportation Accident. So the first thing we need to know about The Teleportation Accident is that it is historical fiction, uh, in, in the very loose sense of what that means, at least. The story takes place in the past of our world, but it is not at all about important events. Uh, Our characters are all nobody, Uh, and in fact, that's actually one of the motifs of the book. This story takes place between 1931 and 1940, though we do then get four epilogues that are set at various points outside of this time frame. The second thing that we need to know is that the book is funny. It's not ha-ha funny, it is, though, sardonic funny. Each of our two point-of-view characters has a cynical and disdainful view of the world, uh, and especially of other people. But at the same time, Bowman himself has a disdainful view of his own characters. We would not, as readers, we would not want anything to do with most of the people we meet in this story. And so I think if you can envision Kurt Vonnegut a bit more British, then you've basically got the tone of this book. Okay, so I just said something like two point-of-view characters, but... I'm only ever going to talk about one of them here in the plot recap, though I will talk about the other one in the strengths and weaknesses segment, and that other character is only the point of view character, even for a very short part of the book. The bulk of the book is the story of the German theatrical set builder. He works in theater. His name is Egon Lerser, and to be clear, I am pronouncing this like it's Goethe, but to an Anglophone reader, the name looks like loser on the page, and that's intentional. The deal is that Lursa is a part of the Weimar theater scene. Uh, Weimar is the name of this period in German history. If if I've got time, I'll talk more about that in the the next segment. But this theater scene and and, and arts scene is really what I should say, because he also knows musicians and composers and writers and so on. But this scene is mostly parties with lots of drugs, quite a bit of sex. It comes off as empty. Everyone is morally bankrupt. It all seems rather pointless, also really self-congratulatory, which is surely intentional here. At any rate, I'll say more about that in a few moments. First, I want to say a bit about the play that Lursa's theater is working on at the moment, because it is driven mainly by Lursa, and it's something of a passion project of his. This play is about a famous set designer from the 17th century. His name is Adriano Lavaccini. I say famous, but I do want to be clear that 
Roman has made this person up. He's only famous in the world of the novel. And and, and also, even then, right, only to, to theater people, right, to be extra clear. Lavaccini was a native Venetian, but he went to work in Paris at the theater patronized by the French king, uh, the famous Sun King, uh, Louis XIV, who, who is a real person. Lavaccini died in an accident at that theater, uh, the Theater of Squids, which is also something made up by Bowman, but, uh, you know, that's kind of the first beat in the, the Lovecraft business that we'll, uh, we'll get to eventually. The accident came about because of a set device that he was building that was meant to appear to teleport an actor from one place to another. The accident brought down much of the theater. It killed many people, including Lavaccini himself. And there are all sorts of urban legends about what happened, uh, including that he had made some kind of deal with the devil, that there were tentacles from another dimension that appeared and destroyed the theater, and, and, and a host of other ideas. And as we go, we'll get even more stories about this incident from other people, such as the whole thing was an attempted assassination of Louis XIV that just went wrong. So within the art scene of Weimar Berlin, Lursa is a set designer who wants to put on a play about another set designer and that set designer's mysterious death. But as the story opens... It's not going well, and it's clear to us that this play is unlikely to ever see fruition. It's never actually going to make it to the stage. The plot of this book gets going, though, when Lursa meets someone at a party with whom he would really like to have sex. Her name is Adele, and she rejects him several times and then eventually agrees to a date with him, but she doesn't show up for it. When Lursa goes looking for her, he discovers that she's moved to Paris, so he goes looking for her. But then in Paris, he learns that she's gone to Los Angeles, and so, again, he follows. As I said, Lurser and his entire scene, his entire artistic community here, everybody that we meet, they're all morally bankrupt. Lurser is not at all sympathetic in his pursuit of Adele here, and we are meant to think of him as a loser. We're not meant to sympathize with him. But in a sense, all of that's actually just been set up so far, because the bulk of the story takes place in Los Angeles, where Lursa gets wrapped up in a Soviet spy ring. This happens accidentally. It happens when Lursa ends up at the, the house of his favorite writer, an American pulp novelist whom Bowman has also made up, though I, I wish he had not. I, I would love to read some of these books that uh, uh, Bowman makes up and gives us some some bits of uh, text from. But it turns out that this writer and his wife are involved in helping German artists who have left Germany because of the Nazis. Uh, they're helping them find work or some other kind of support in LA. Lursa has no knowledge of this ahead of time, but is accidentally swept up in this. And it turns out that Actually, a lot of his friends from the Berlin art scene are here and are starting to work in Hollywood. Lurser doesn't ever do that, though. He doesn't ever take a job in the film industry, even though what he has done for a living, what he knows how to do is build sets. He doesn't do that because he thinks it would be selling out. Uh, also, he just doesn't intend to stay because he doesn't care about the Nazis. He's not actually in exile from Germany. He just came here for a woman he's stalking. So he can go back any time. At any rate, this whole effort by the pulp writer and his wife is actually a front for the wife's work as a Soviet spy. She's not a Soviet spy by choice, though, but she's being blackmailed into using her socialite connections in order to help out her handler. 
And that handler is a pianist and composer who Lurser knows from Berlin. And he's actually really shocked to discover that this guy even cares about or is involved with anything other than his music. Lurser, of course, is going to get swept up in all of this. And, and, and here is how, more or less anyway, here is how. Lursa has also accidentally come into contact with a wealthy old man named General Gorge, who has gotten rich by selling containers of car wax. He's a weird old man with a a strange neurological affliction where he cannot tell the difference between an image and reality. He's got a guest house that is vacant, and he rents it out to Lursa. But it turns out that General Gorge is actually the descendant of the person who owned the Theater of Squids in Paris. That was the theater destroyed by Lavaccini. Lavaccini, who is Lursa's hero. Gorge also has another ancestor who had been disastrously involved in the theater. And so, while he himself has never had anything to do with the theater because his life has been car wax, he decides to use his fortune, his car wax fortune, to build a theater department at Caltech. And because he's put up all the money for it, he also gets to be the unofficial artistic director. And so, he sends Lurser to be the director of the theater's plays. This isn't because of anything to do with Lurser either. What Gorge actually wants is just, he just wants Lurser to spy on the physics department because he's heard that someone there is working on a teleportation device. Gorge's interest in this teleportation device is about public transportation in Los Angeles. This is a highly amusing subplot. I'm not going to get into it any more than that. And what really matters is that, yeah, there is someone there, the Caltech physics department, who is working on teleportation, and his name is Professor Bailey. He's got a prototype, and he's sending stuff somewhere using this teleportation device prototype, but he doesn't know where somewhere is, and it is still not quite clear how it works, like how how or why it's actually working. It turns out that the Soviets are also interested in this teleportation device, and Lurser's acquaintance with Professor Bailey is why the Soviet spy ring is interested in Lurser, though all Lurser ever does is get Bailey to go to some parties. And and he doesn't even know that there's a Soviet spy ring involved. I mean, he does figure that out eventually, but he doesn't know at the time. Okay, so this is a lot of pieces. It's a lot of moving parts. It's it's a complex, convoluted plot here. But what actually is the story? How are all of these pieces, how are all of these elements coming together? Well, it turns out that Bailey has two connections with Lurser. One, he knows all about Lavaccini because Lavaccini also was working on a teleportation device. I mean, it was just an innovative piece of stage equipment. But what if it was actually more than that? The other connection is that Professor Bailey's research assistant is Adele. Adele, the woman Lucer came to L.A. to find. Now, that is largely over now, and the real point is that the teleportation device works for her. Whenever Adele is working late on little experiments, her stuff always disappears. But when Bailey puts things in the teleportation device, it, it, it doesn't. His stuff just goes in the machine when he turns it on, and it does its thing the stuff is always still there. Now, Bailey has said something cryptic about how the device is powered by the only force that really moves things in the universe. Adele thinks this is love, because it turns out that she's in love with Bailey. The odd thing is, though, that 
We know that mysterious feminine objects are showing up in Lurser's house without any explanation. He just comes home and there's jewelry and other things, undergarments and so on, in his house. So maybe that's Adele's stuff and she's teleporting it there to Lurser's house without realizing it? We're certainly led to believe that for, for quite a long time, but it, it it's not what's happening. She is not teleporting objects to Lurser's house. It, it turns out that Lurser's acquaintance, uh, someone else who's been kind of a minor character in the story, uh, just happens to use Lurser's house to have affairs with married women when Lurser's not home. What is happening to Adele's stuff is that it isn't actually going anywhere. There's a janitor who sneaks into the device through the ceiling and takes her stuff because he's stalking her and he has a collection of her intimate objects. It also turns out that Bailey never meant love. He meant murder. And he's actually been secretly murdering people in order to power his machine. And he he thinks it's working. But he also thinks that he needs to really kill a lot of people all at once in order to power it up. And he thinks this in part because he believes that this is exactly what Lavaccini did in the 17th century, that Lavaccini destroyed the theater of squids and killed all those people on purpose so that his teleportation device could be powered. So Bailey has plans to destroy this new theater at Caltech during a performance in exactly the same fashion that he, he thinks Lavaccini did this in Paris. Lursa figures this out, but... Bailey figures out that Lursa has figured him out, and there is something of a standoff that ends with uh, another Berlin acquaintance of Lursa's who happens to work in this physics department. Uh, It ends with him wrestling Bailey into the teleportation device just as it's been turned on. Bailey kills this man in the fight, this pretty brutal scene. But then when the machine is off, Bailey is gone and, and really gone. No one ever finds him. But we know he couldn't have teleported, right? Because we know now that the machine doesn't work. It was just the janitor the whole time, right? And that's the main plot. But then we do get these these four epilogues that I mentioned earlier. One of them is set in Venice at the end of the 17th century. And it's the story of Lavaccini, who, it turns out, didn't actually die in the theater accident. And that accident was all a fraud. Uh, Lavaccini rigged the theater to collapse, but he also made sure that no one would be in that part of the theater. The the bodies that people found were all fake. I mean, he's a, a set designer, right? So they were all fake. And he did this just so that he could get out of his contract with the theater. It was all just to fake his own death. And then he lived in secret solitude on an abandoned island in the Venetian lagoon. There's a little more to his story, but I'll, I'll leave it there. I'm also going to skip the middle two epilogues here and just take us to this final epilogue, right? The note that the book ends on. And this shows us what happened to Bailey. It turns out that maybe his machine was powered by murder and it really did work, but it didn't teleport him from one place to another. It wasn't a teleportation device at all. It was a time machine. It it sent him into the future. It sent him to the year 19,310. At this point, the earth is more ocean than land. Humans are long gone. They've been replaced by a sentient species of dinosaur people. And that's the end of the book. All right, let's move into our themes and motifs segment right away here. And obviously, this final epilogue is the one bit of bona fide weird fiction that we get in the book explicitly. And I did say that we were going to talk about speculative fiction here in this segment. But I'm going to do that part last. 
And so instead, I'm going to talk about two themes that are more central to the, the plot and the setting here. I want to start by thinking about the teleportation accident as a work of historical fiction, though really, I, I would say that this is anti-historical fiction. The book opens in Berlin in 1931, and then the second chapter is set in 1933 before Lurser leaves Berlin, and the, the setting you know, shifts to Paris and then eventually to Los Angeles, where the bulk of the novel takes place. And even if you are only vaguely familiar with the history of the 20th century, you probably have some idea that Adolf Hitler is rising to power at this time, between 1931 and 1933. And in fact, between this first and second chapter, between 1931 and 1933, Hitler has been defeated in a bid to become the president of Germany, an election. I mean, he came in second out of three with 37% of the vote. And also, though, during this time, despite that loss in that election, the Nazi party became the most populous political party represented in the German legislative body, not with a majority of the seats, though it's a multi-party system. But because of that, Hitler is appointed chancellor, and then he engineers a series of crises in order to grant himself emergency powers that far exceed the normal scope of the office of chancellor. And this is how he becomes the the dictator that we remember him as. All of this has happened between chapters. And from our perspective, you know, the audience reading this in the early 21st century, this, this is the thing that is happening in Germany at this time. But it's barely in the background of this book. In, in fact, Bowman intentionally ignores it. He, he wants us to know that he's ignoring it, though, right? He wants us to know that this is a book set at this time, but it's not about this time. It gives Lurser a, a number of lines about how politics is stupid and how he is willfully ignorant of it. He doesn't read newspapers. He refuses to ever let anyone tell him anything about current events. He firmly believes that theater should not engage in politics or current events, you know, tell stories about any of these things. And this position is even the cause of a falling out with his director partner who wants to start putting on plays that will confront the rise of Nazism. The true opening of this book actually is you know, not the first sentence of the, the, the novel. It's actually an epigram from the 1918 essay by Thomas Mann, an essay called Reflections of a Non-Political Man. So, even though he's completely surrounded by the Nazi revolution and everyone around him is well aware of it and, and involved in it in some way, Lursa just doesn't notice it happening. In Berlin in 1931 and 1933, the extent to which Lursa encounters Nazis at all is that one of his theater friends has joined the party because there are so many attractive Nazi men and he likes the weekend parties at Castle's. Lurser also participates in a book burning because he does actually hate the novel that is thrust into his hands as he just happens to be walking by this. Later on in the book, as our story marches through, progresses through the 1930s, and it is not merely that Hitler has destroyed the democratic institutions of the, the German Republic, the, the Weimar Republic, but in fact that he is creating a legally segregated society by demoting Jews to second-class citizens who are subject to increasing losses of civil liberties, which ultimately culminates in the Holocaust. And, and this is why so many people Lurser knows from Berlin are showing up in L.A. They are fleeing the Nazi regime. They are escaping this. But Lurser doesn't have any empathy for them, any sympathy for them either. He's just 
annoyed that he can't really himself get away from, uh, escape the Berlin art scene that made him feel like a loser. But he also, during this time, is, is corresponding with his former director partner. They're, they're sending letters back and forth to each other. Well, that, that's actually not true. He's not corresponding. I should say that Lurster is receiving letters from his director partner. And these always begin with an anecdote about how difficult it has become to live as a Jew in Germany. And Lurster just thinks that his former friend, close friend, best friend, partner in his life's pursuit is just trying to manipulate him. And so when he sees that a letter opens that way, he just stops reading it and throws it away. Ultimately, at the end of the book, we discover that this person died in a concentration camp. And when Lerser himself becomes aware of this, there's a sense that he's in denial and that he's really just refusing to acknowledge that he was wrong to ignore the world around him. And finally, the book ends with another friend of Lurser's. This is an English writer named Rackenham. This is the person who was uh, having the affairs in his house when Lurser wasn't there. Rackenham is making a documentary about the end of the Weimar artistic renaissance, the 1920s art scene in Berlin. And he wants Lurser to give some anecdotes about how Lurser became aware that the Nazis had brought all of that to an end. But the thing is, Lurser doesn't have any such anecdotes. For one, he wasn't here. He, he had moved to L.A. But two, even if he had been in Berlin, he wouldn't have been paying attention. But Rackenham says this doesn't matter. Uh, the documentary that he's making is basically just a racket, and he's going to make the whole thing up, and he can pay Lurser for his time. And Rackenham, earlier in the book, had had some commercial success as a novelist with a historical novel that got all the details wrong, because it was really just a story about his life in Berlin that he set in 17th century Venice and just changed the historical details as it suited him. So all of this adds up to a novel that, although set in the past, is explicitly anti-historical. In the first of the epilogues, Lurser calls history an alarm clock that he wants to throw out the window. And that is more or less the summation of his character. He does not want to see the world around him, and he certainly does not want to have to do anything about it. And Lursu, he's trivial and silly. He's selfish, but he's monstrous, really. He's a monstrous character. But of course, he's not the most monstrous character in the book. That's Professor Bailey, the serial killer who believes that human sacrifice has an effect on the physical properties of the universe and can actually operate a teleportation device. Part of the mystery of whether or not the device is working, uh, you know, from our perspective as readers, I mean, part of the, the mystery is that Bailey mysteriously, cryptically says that the device is powered by the one thing in the world that can uproot anything. Adele believes that this is love, and she is convinced that her love for Professor Bailey is why the device works for her and not for him. And when Lursa thinks that the device is working, and also that it's Adele's stuff that is mysteriously showing up in his house, he thinks the reason is that she subconsciously lusts for him and is just in denial about it. And so you know, here the attitude is, or the idea is that it's not love that can uproot anything. It's it's lust, or, or maybe we should say desire. Of course, this turns out to have a totally different explanation. And so they're both wrong about what is the one thing in the world that can uproot anything. 
Bailey, of course, thinks that force is violence, uh, or maybe even specifically murder, maybe even human sacrifice. Uh, it's not entirely clear to me sort of how broad, how broad that force is there. And the thing is, maybe he's right. I, I mean, if we can take it literally that he sends himself to the future, then maybe he's right. Certainly, that was the experience of the early and middle part of the 20th century, when world wars and genocides uprooted the entire world. And Lister wasn't even paying enough attention to notice. Okay, so let's end with weird fiction. H.P. Lovecraft is all over this book, or at least he's all over the book once Lursa gets to L.A., which is the bulk of the book. Lursa has no idea who Lovecraft is, but he quickly becomes friends with a guy who owns a shop that sells pornographic books. I mean, it probably sells other books too, but this is its main business, uh, even though uh, Raymond Chandler informs me that this is illicit. But at any rate, this bookshop owner is super into Lovecraft. He's actually reading At the Mountains of Madness in Astounding Stories when Lurser meets him. And he also lends Lurser a, a copy of the issue of Weird Tales that has The Call of Cthulhu in it. Uh, this is a treasure that I would love to get my hands on. I mean, even just a, a reprint of that issue. And, and as the book continues, we get references to other famous Lovecraft stories. Uh, the Shadow Over Innsmouth is the one that matters the most. That is also my, my, my favorite of the, the major Lovecraft works as well. But where Lovecraft matters to the plot is that some people think Lovecraft wasn't writing fiction. That actually Lovecraft's aliens and secret histories and non-Euclidean geometries are real esoteric knowledge. One such person is the Secretary of State. Cordell Hall. Uh, and that is a, a real person, by the way. Uh, Cordell Hall actually remains the longest serving Secretary of State. He won a Nobel Peace Prize, a pretty famous person. But his fictional persona here in the book believes everything Lovecraft writes, believes it's all true. And Hall is using State Department money to fund experiments into the imaginary science that is found in pulp magazines. That's how Bailey's research on teleportation is being funded, and there are several other bizarre projects at Caltech that are being funded this way as well. Much of this is just a really fun red herring, as there's a, a, a brief section in which we the readers think that maybe the original early modern teleportation accident really was the result of Lavacini getting up to some weird occult stuff. I mean, there's tentacles in, involved and, and so on here. And this is a really fun motif. It's something that I really, really enjoyed about the the book. And, and there's some other things going on too. I mean, I mentioned these uh, sentient dinosaur people in the, the final epilogue. Those don't show up randomly there in that final epilogue. We've had a brief incident with them uh, earlier in the book that uh, not maybe quite love Craftian in in a in a literal sense, but but Lovecraftian in spirit, right? This idea that there's this uh, this secret past of the Earth in which the humans were not the only sentient creatures to to you know ever inhabit the Earth. I mean, that's literally the exact plot of at the Mountains of Madness. Just the specific form of that in this book is uh, a little bit different than what Lovecraft envisions, and and there are other. Uh, brilliant Easter eggs and, and tidbits of that here. I just really, really enjoyed this part of the book. It was just so much fun. And speaking of fun, let's get into the final segment and talk some strengths and weaknesses. 
I really enjoyed this book. I'm so glad that it was brought to my attention. I'm so grateful for this episode commission. There are, in fact, many more speculative fiction allusions in this book besides just Lovecraft. These were all absolutely delightful. I I really, truly laughed out loud at at several of these, uh, these allusions here. Bowman also can craft the heck out of a sentence. There are some paragraphs in this book that sparkle. Bowman is not doing lush landscape descriptions or other things that I really go in for, but his snarky social commentary is is awesome, even though that's actually not normally the sort of thing that I enjoy all that much. But I actually think it's really fantastic, and let me give you an example of it. And this is going to be a long paragraph here. It's basically a, a page of the story. Consider Germany under the Weimar Republic in 1931. Thirteen years since its inception, five years since its acknowledged zenith, two years since there was last any good coke. A culture old enough, in other words, the journalists were already beginning to judge it in retrospect, as history. And they were calling it a golden age, an unprecedented flourishing. But if you were part of it, and even if you were only part of its decline, like Lurser, you couldn't help but say to yourself, all these thousands of young people, all in a few nearby neighborhoods, all calling themselves artists, as Rackenham had said. And all this spare time, and all these openings, and all these premieres, and all these parties— and all this talk and talk and talk and drink and talk for nearly 15 years, all of this. And what had it produced for which anyone would really swap a bad bottle of Riesling in eight decades' time? A few plays, a few paintings, a few piano concertos, most of which, anyway, went quite unnoticed by the boys and girls who made such a fuss about being at the heart of it all. If it was a golden age, then an astute investor might consider selling off his bullion before the rate fell any further. There had been so many golden ages now, and Lursa was confident that they had all been the same, and always would be. Compare the Venice of the late Renaissance, where Lavicini came of age, to the Berlin of Weimar, or compare the Berlin of Weimar to whatever city would turn out to be most fashionable in 2012, and you would find the same empty people going to the same empty parties and making the same empty comments about the same empty efforts, with just a few spasms of worthwhile art going on at the naked extremities. Nothing ever changed. And wow, this passage just really worked to me. I mean, I thought this was just a beautiful bit of writing, also just a great critique of art scenes. And honestly, this book is full of this type of observation, and this type of writing, this is enough to recommend the book all by itself. There are some things I didn't care for in this book, uh, namely that there's a lot of sex and also a lot of profanity in the book. Those are just things I don't care for. That's simply a matter of taste. And, and I do feel, though, like I ought to let you know that this is a big part of the book in case you share that taste. For me, personally, it's a weakness of the book, but it did not get in the way of my, my loving it. I just would have preferred that stuff to not be there. The same is really true with the one thing that I do consider to be a weakness of the book, and that's the third chapter. This is set in Paris in 1934, and it is told from the point of view of a different character. It's not from the point of view of Lurser. Now, at the time, I thought that this meant that this character was going to recur in this capacity, and maybe this book would have even more point of view characters. But no, that, that that's not what's going on here. We just get this one 50-page chunk that is about another character. And Lurser actually appears in this story. He shows up about halfway through which also then I think is a weird choice as well. And nothing that happens here matters to the plot of the book. We, we do get some information that we need about Lavicini, but that's easily moved somewhere else. So to me, this felt like an artifact from a conception of the book that Bowman abandoned at, at, at some point, and it was surprising to me that it's actually been left in. 
that, that said, it is actually a fun and interesting chapter. I, I love Paris. Bowman wrote about it very well. I, I enjoyed the heck out of that. There's a lot of jokes about the, the bookstore Shakespeare and Company, a lot of jokes about Hemingway and all the bars that he likes to go to and so on. But the chapter didn't serve any purpose in the book. And I think that if it were gone, the story would zip along with uh, quite a bit more focus. That said, though, it's kind of a great novella in its own right. So really, it's not that much of a weakness. And this is a great book. And I think since I've, I've reached the point here where I'm just repeatedly saying, this is a great book and you should read it, I think that's going to bring my review to a close. But I do hope you'll visit the ATOS forum at claytemplemedia.com or drop by the Clay Temple Media subreddit and talk with me about the themes and motifs and the strengths and weaknesses that I've focused on. But as I always say, also, especially on what I left out. And there's a whole motif in this book about a kind of ontological aspasia that I just haven't really talked about at all. I mean, I mentioned it briefly in the recap segment, but it's a big motif here and it would be a ton of fun to take that up together. But all right, that is going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. You can find me and all our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. Next month, we're going to return to the world of role-playing game novels. We're going to read a book set in the Numenera game universe. This is the novel called The Poison Eater by Shauna Germain. This is another book brought to us by one of our really awesome Patreon supporters, and this is something I'm, I'm really, really excited for. Numenera, I think, is just a, such a fun game. I mean, we've done an entire episode of ATAS on that game, and it's going to be fun to check out a novel that is actually set in that speculative world. But until then, I hope you'll remember that if more of us valued food and cheer and song above hoarded gold, it would be a merrier world.